Shabbat Shalom. Or as we sometimes say, Shabbat Shalomi homies. How can I tell you? I'm from San Francisco. Can you hear me okay? Okay, good. All right, so it, it's really great to be uh, with Mishpucha this morning. Not only Mishpucha, but Chaim was uh, talking about angels, and, um, and my angels are Judy and John. And, yes, yes, that's okay. I'm very flexible. See, I always have people looking after me. Can I take everybody back to San Francisco? I, I need the looking after. Um, so it's, it's good to be in a place where I know that we all share um, the same desire for more of our people to recognize uh, Yeshua HaMashiach. And um, I think that you know that 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 is the heart of Jews for Jesus, and that's that's why we exist. And um, some of you are probably uh, more acquainted with our ministry than others. Those who are acquainted, you probably are aware of um, our being out on the streets for witnessing that that we do uh, visits with those who are open to exploring what the scriptures have to say about Mashiach. Um, but we're also always looking for some creative ways. Um, to make him known. And that's because the more you do the same thing, the easier it gets for people to ignore it. And it's not so much that we don't want people to ignore us, but we don't want people to ignore the one that we are representing. And so we look for different ways that we can um, draw people's attention. And one of those ways is really as old as creation itself. And that's creativity. And that is the creative arts. And uh, you can uh, see the multitudes up here, and that's, um, that's part of um, uh, quite a project that we've been involved in and that I get to talk to you um, about this morning. Um, so we can try and break the stereotypes that, um, that he is, you know, the god of the goyim. We can try to get people to take a second look. We can try to get them to understand and appreciate the Jewish context of Yeshua and his mission here. So we can go to the next slide. Um, since June of 2013, we've been experimenting with um, evangelistic art shows. And um, it's, it's been, I haven't personally been involved, but what you see here um, is an art show at our, our biggest um, Jews for Jesus branch, which is in Tel Aviv. And the Lord has really blessed us with a wonderful place uh, in a, a part of Tel Aviv called Florentine. And um, uh, the Moish Rosen Center is where we have our young adult ministry. And the young adults, they do all kinds of creative things, including hosting these art shows. By the way, my father, he never wanted a building named after him. Um, he thought it should be named after my mother, who even more didn't want a <laughs> building named after her. Um, but uh, Dad was uh, called home before uh, the center opened up, and so, Dad, you don't always get what you want. But, but he did always want us to have a, a presence uh, in Israel, and I think he'd be really thrilled um, to see what is happening there. So... Sorry, I'm not used to doing a whole presentation on PowerPoint. This is kind of really new to me. So we can go to the next slide. And just a couple of months ago, we had an art show at, at the center that drew about 150 Israelis, most of whom do not know Yeshua, and 30 of whom actually gave us their follow-up information to be in further contact with our staff there to see why we believe that Yeshua is Mashiach. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that when we have um, a, an update. But the next slide, please. Um, this is our building in Los Angeles, which is right across the street from UCLA campus in Westwood. And um, the young adults there really refurbished the space to make a, a very... Um, inviting for creative arts, and that's what you see here. Um, they had a gallery of the multitudes art, and multitudes is not only the theme of the art show, but it's the theme of our message um, this morning. And you'll see that the art and the message really go together. The next slide, please. Mm -hmm. 
So here's a Jewish booby, and she is looking at one of the paintings that we'll be showing you in just a little while. This is when we had um, the showing in New York. And I don't know if you can see there's a little plaque uh, down next to each painting so that people will come in and look at the artwork and then look at the legend, which is always a passage um, from the Gospel of Matthew as well as very often the references um, from Tanakh um, that Matthew is always quoting. So that was pretty cool. Next slide, please. So why multitudes? Well, Matthew 9.36 tells us, when Yeshua saw the multitudes, he was moved with what? Compassion. He was moved with compassion for them because he saw that they were weary and scattered like sheep with no shepherd. Next slide, please. And we see it again in Matthew 14. And when Jesus went out, when Yeshua went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. And we'll take a closer look at this particular painting later. The next slide, please. And in Matthew 5, 1 and 2, and seeing again the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. Then he opened his mouth, and he taught them. So when we see the multitudes throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we see how Yeshua responded to his own people with compassion, with healing, with teaching. And Matthew is considered by many to be the most Jewish of the four Gospel accounts of Yeshua's life, um, in part because it has so many ref references to the Hebrew Scriptures. And we asked um, Steffi Geyser-Rubin, who she hasn't been on our staff for a, a long time, but she was one of the founding uh, Jews for Jesus and uh, very talented. And we asked that she would illustrate the Gospel of Matthew in a way that would really uh, bring out the Jewish context of Yeshua's life and his mission and his teachings. So we're going to take a little bit of a Jewish artwork, art walk, um, through the Gospel of Matthew this morning, starting with a closer look at this painting. So the next slide. Yeah, okay. Um, have you ever wondered about the people who walked away from their plows or who set aside their fishing nets or just basically put their life on hold in order to listen to the words of Yeshua and maybe even to follow him? Well, I think that Jesus, Yeshua, saw these people and, and he saw all of their potential. He saw really the humanity and, and what they were meant to be. When he went up and stood on the Mount of Beatitudes, people were engrossed by his words. And those words seemed to enliven and empower them. And they were words that enabled them to want what he wanted for them, which was blessings. And he knew how beaten down, how downtrodden and hopeless people were when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I believe that when he looked at the multitudes, that Yeshua saw their curiosity, their hopes, their fears, their ambitions, and their longing for their maker, which many couldn't even, even understand as in worship. Sometimes we don't know that we're thirsty. We don't know that we are panting for the Lord. And I believe that he saw them with all of the beauty um, that they were meant to have, but also all of the brokenness that was caused by turning away from God and treating him as though he's less than deserving of our trust and our obedience. And that's the basic problem when Chaim was talking about how depressing things are. It's basically because the human race doesn't want God all up in our business. That's really the problem. Um, because if we would recognize um, how worthy he is of our trust and our obedience, then we would receive his, his grace, his forgiveness, and we would pour it out upon others. But in this illustration in particular, the artist wanted to show all of these faces, and sometimes when people look, they kind of find their own face there, so I don't know how well you can see it, but maybe, maybe there's one of these faces that you can identify with. Next slide, please. 
So my dad used to say Christmas is a Jewish holiday, or at least it should be. Name of one of our tracks. And I suppose if you stopped 100 people on the streets and, and asked them what the Bible has to say about uh, the birth of the Messiah, most of them would say, oh, well, you're only going to find that uh, in the New Testament. Sometimes we like to call it the Newer Testament, <laughs> not the New Testament, the Newer Testament. But Matthew knew better. Uh, he understood that it could very clearly be seen throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. And so in uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, he quotes the prophet Micha right out of the Hebrew Scriptures. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. My people Israel. And in this painting, you have, you see the meeting of all of the yellows there, the sepias and the okras of the horizontal plane uh, going across that represents the, the landscape of Bethlehem. And then the blue vertical strokes of the heavens that make up more than 80% of that image. And then filling the sky are these golden brush stroke Hebrew letters. And of course, this is just, um, you know, a, a, a slide, but in the actual artwork, it's much more brilliant. And so we understand from the gospel accounts that those wise men that were, sh that were seeking Messiah, that they were given a sign, a bright star in the heavens to guide them to the place of his birth, to draw them to Yeshua. But in this painting, the bright sign is depicted as Micha's prophecy. That's what those words are, the words of the prophet Micha, and they're shining over that sleeping town. And so it's the prophecy itself in the, in the Hebrew, which is um, leading the people to the place of Yeshua's birth. The prophecy reminds us that the promised son of David, um, Messiah, would hail from David's own town, Bethlehem, Beit Lechem. And the words of Micah, repeated by Matthew, underline um, Messiah's lineage and his location, but they point to more than just a place because the verse talks about a ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So that tells us something about the nature of the Messiah, not just the mundane, where he's going to be born, but something about his nature that so many of our people don't yet understand. The next slide, please. So the Judean wilderness, I suppose uh, many of us have been there, have seen it. It can be a pretty unforgiving place. Um, really extreme temperatures, um, scorching heat and loneliness that stretches for miles. That's where sometimes people would go out to just be away from everybody and meet with God. And that's where the words of Isaiah echoed uh, from the mouth of Yochanan the Baptist. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of Adonai, the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So it was there in the desert that Yochanan urged repentance as people were coming from Jerusalem to confess their sins and be immersed in the Jordan River. And the mikvah was part of Jewish tradition to confer cleanliness and purity. So for that reason, it must have seemed really odd um, to Yochanan when he saw Yeshua coming and Yeshua asking to be baptized because Yochanan knew that he had no need for cleansing, that this was the one person on the face of the earth who was already pure, and, and, and he, he was really kind of horrified by the idea that he was being asked to do this because, remember, Yochanan had, had predicted one coming whose sandal laces I'm not worthy, you know, to tie. And here was this great one asking him to perform this for him. And he also had said of Yeshua that this one, I baptize you with water, but this one will baptize you with fire and the Ruach HaKodesh. So we can picture kind of his being so startled. Um, and here you kind of see the, it's like the, the heat of the desert and the sort of the shimmering lines there. And Yeshua answered his cousin, let it happen now. For in this way, it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. So Yeshua didn't need the mikvah 
He didn't need to repent, but he was showing very clearly that he was not rejecting his Jewish heritage, that he was not rejecting um, anything about um, his human origins, and that he, in fact, was very mindful that there were certain things that he was um, called to do, as was said in the Hebrew Scriptures. He didn't forsake his birthright at any time. The next slide, please. I suppose one of the most often quoted chapters um, of the Hebrew Scriptures is Isaiah 53, which as most of you know, was written 700 years before Yeshua ever walked on the earth. And it's not surprising that Matthew quotes um, part of this chapter in chapter 8 as he portrays the life of Yeshua in its true context. In Jewish tradition, this chapter has been known to be messianic. I know that now um, there is, and there has been for quite some time, a popularized interpretation that the suffering servant is Israel. But it's interesting that this didn't really come about as, as uh, a popular interpretation until well after the time that Yeshua walked on the earth. And uh, we can only surmise that it was uh, kind of uh, a, a move to, to block so many people from thinking um, as it actually does, um, speak of him, of Yeshua. And we see this as most people, um, if they're reading the words of the prophet out loud for the first time and they have no rabbinic background or training and they don't know where they're reading it from and you hand them a Bible and they read it out loud, most people will say, oh, you're giving me something from the New Testament, something about Jesus, because it is that obvious. And uh, I know Judy and I were talking about a friend of hers. I'm sure she would uh, appreciate um, prayer for Helene, who actually read this and actually saw that it's Yeshua and said, what does that mean to me? Because without, without the Ruach HaKodesh to open our eyes and our hearts, we, we, can, we can see who it is, but we don't have any idea of our own need and what this means to us. And speaking of affliction, illness, separation, and sorrow, Matthew 8.17 references Isaiah 53. He himself took our sicknesses and carried away our diseases. And Steffi found inspiration from that text as well as the following verse in Isaiah as she painted those words in Hebrew as the very stripes um, that Yeshua would suffer so that we could be healed. And you notice that the text isn't, isn't painted in, in neat, straight lines, but it's, it's kind of almost slashes, almost gashes, and you can picture the crack of the whip on Yeshua's bare back as he took those stripes, as he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of pains and acquainted with disease, and as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we esteemed him not." Surely our diseases he did bear, and our pains he carried, whereas we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Perhaps this very passage was instrumental in bringing some of you to faith in Yeshua. Is anybody, anybody here profoundly impacted by those verses in your faith journey? I know a lot of people who have been. Um, perhaps there are some here this morning who haven't really reached a conclusion yet about who Yeshua is and whether or not he is the Messiah. And I hope that you allow these words in this painting to speak to you of who he is. The next slide. This is one of my favorite paintings in the collection. And we're going to park on this one for a while. We're going to talk about this one for a while. In Matthew 9, we see that Jesus called Matthew... How cool it must have been for him to be recording, you know, this whole incident. I often think about it. He, he, he really did very well. He was very, <laughs> the spirit allowed him to be very objective about this. Well, the tax collectors, as you knew, were the low life um, in Israel at that time because we were under the Roman tyranny. And to have to pay taxes to Rome was bad enough. But to have your own countrymen be the ones who would collect it was even worse and to add insult to injury, not only were the taxes collected by fellow Jews, but 
they were known to not be exactly the cream of the crop of society because they would gouge and extract more money than what the Romans were asking for, many of them, and then keep the difference from themselves. And this is why the tax collectors were really um, despised. Um, Meshimots, traitors. That's what they were. That's what they were called. And so, um, and so in Matthew, where we see that Yeshua called this tax collector, we see that the next thing you know, he and his, and his Tommy Deem, his disciples, are having dinner with a whole boatload of tax collectors. And, and I suppose, you know, probably Matthew's friend said, hey, look, a holy guy who's actually going to talk to us. And, uh, so, and so the Bible tells us they sat down. Um, they weren't they weren't used to being noticed, you know, much much less um, really related to by anybody, much less somebody who was holy and religious. And so we see in the passage that um, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they say to his his Tommy Deem, they don't say it to Yeshua, but they say it to his his friends. Why is your teacher eating with these tax collectors and sinners? You know implied what is the matter with him what is his problem and then we see in verse 12 yeshua says and i I know this is familiar to you those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick but go and learn what this means i desire mercy and not sacrifice and of course yeshua was quoting from the Hebrew scriptures from Hosea chapter 6 verse 6. Like I said, we're going to park here for a while because I just love both of these passages. And I do owe it to you um, before telling you what they mean to me to tell you a little bit about the inspiration that Steffi had for this painting. Because she actually got inspiration for this painting um, from another narrative uh, in the same chapter a little bit later on. And suddenly... A woman had a flow of blood for 12 years, came from behind, and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Yeshua turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. And that's what Steffi was thinking about when she created this piece. And that's why two-thirds of the painting that you see are top to bottom. It's a garment. And I hope that you can see the talit. I hope you can see the fringes and the knots that are hanging down there. And it's so cool because the fringes are, are coming down into the red, which represents you know, the woman and, and her disease, um, the, the blood. And Steffi, in her notes, said, The colors depict the exchange of conditions that occurs in that instance when healing is transferred to the woman as her infirmity shifts toward Yeshua. The exchange of blood and healing is informed earlier by verse 13, where Yeshua expands the notion of healing to include granting of forgiveness. He quotes Hosea 6, 6, for I delight in mercy and not sacrifice. And I love the way that she has graphically portrayed um, this concept because you see that the garment representing Yeshua's holiness, you see that none of those fringes are contaminated um, by the blood. She did not make him unclean, but he made her to be clean. And yet when Steffi talks about the infirmity shifting toward Yeshua, that's what you see above the fringes in the middle where you see that sort of almost looks like a broom coming down with the red going up into the garment. And that's, um, that's the, the red being drawn up into Yeshua's garment. Another aspect of the last painting where he bore our iniquities and by his stripes we are healed. But I want to get back to what Yeshua was saying to the Pharisees. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, the Hebrew word chesed um, from Hosea, I'm translating as mercy, but you probably know that it has a wide range of meanings. Um, It's um, often called loyal love or faithfulness or covenant love, all of these things that speak of, of God's 
unchanging promises and all that goes with those promises because in order to keep his promises, he has to be merciful. In order to keep his promises, he has to be faithful and loyal and all of those things. And so when he's telling the the Pharisees, go and learn what this means, um, he's looking at the book of Hosea, which is a very interesting book. The book of Hosea is God's message to Israel saying there's no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. That's Hosea 4.1. And God accuses his own people, the people that he loves, the people that he's faithful to, the people that he's loyal to. He accuses his own people in the most graphic terms possible of being unfaithful and even adulterous in terms of looking to everybody but God for love looking for love in all the wrong places. That's basically what God was saying in the book of Hosea about Israel. Looking for satisfaction of the deepest desires every place but in the one who is able to grant that. And remember that Yeshua is quoting from a chapter that begins with a beautiful call to repentance. Um, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up again. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will what? Raise us up that we may live in his sight. And so the chapter that Yeshua quotes from talks about how after judging us, God will heal us, revive us, and on the third day raise us up if we will repent, shuv, and turn to him after three days coincidence that Yeshua was in the grave for three days? Think about it. Anyway, this chapter continues, and we see that Israel and Judah do not repent. It says, your faithfulness is like like a morning cloud, and like the dew, it goes away. Living in San Francisco, every day I get to come over a hill, and I get to see the fog over the city, and I get to see it in various stages of being burnt off. And so in a sense, it's like, you know, their, their relationship with God was like this fog. You know, it just doesn't last long. You know, pretty early in the morning, it gets burned away. And so it's in this context that we see that verse 6. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And I, I really appreciated the drosh this morning on Leviticus. I thought, man, this, this really fits in. When I think about Leviticus, you know, I know a lot of people think that it's God being a little OCD. You know what I'm saying? You know, because of all of these details and all of the mold. Anybody else feel that way about the mold? Anyway, the mildew, all, all of these things. And, and what I get from the book of Leviticus is not that God is so picky but he really wants to get across the point that having a relationship with him is on his terms. And, and so he, he, he gave us all of these details so that we could realize if, if we want to have a relationship with him, we have to accept it on his terms. We have to, we have to do the, the things that, that he knows are best in, instead of trying to find our, our own way. Well, I think that that Yeshua was pretty much echoing the prophet, saying, without repentance or a change of heart, your sacrifices have no substance. They just evaporate away. Basically, he's saying, God doesn't care about all your religious stuff. It's not like you can press a special religious button and everything is kosher. It doesn't work like that. The idea is, is, is not the religion, but the relationship. And yes, God did give us things to do because it was an opportunity for us to trust him. It was an opportunity for us to trust him in his grace and his obedience. I always think it's interesting when counter-missionaries bring up this passage to use as an argument that, oh, Messiah wasn't supposed to die for the sins of the people. You know, see it right here. You know, even, you know, even the one that you believe in says, you know, mercy, not sacrifice. But is that what it means? I mean, really? Did God work out this whole elaborate? Did God do all of the Leviticus stuff and then say, oh, no, that was a dumb idea. What was I thinking? No, he did it all for a reason. It was all right 
and good and to reflect truth. He gave us the sacrificial system, not out of a desire for blood, not because he loved all of these religious things, not because he delights in it, but out of necessity because, and this is the important thing, what God delights in, we did not give him. What he delights in, we did not give him. So he, he didn't provide the sacrificial system because it was a delight to him, but rather it was a necessity because we were unable and too broken to give him what he delights in. And so it's not in any way to placate him or because he thinks it's so cool to see animals die. He wanted us to understand the tragedy, the tragedy of our sin and separation from him and how, it, and how it's cruel our defiance and rebellion toward God might not seem like that much. Like I said, it's basically the idea we don't want him all up in our business. Well, that might not sound like, you know, well, we're independent. We're this, we're that. But every bad and evil thing stems from that attitude of not wanting God in our business and not thinking that he's worthy of our trust or obedience so the, the sacrifices enable us to see the consequences of that kind of thinking. And not only that, but these sacrifices, they were only a foreshadowing of the real sacrifice that was, that was to come. We could have atonement, we could have a covering, kippur, of our sin, but we couldn't have the sin actually removed. In order for that to happen, that was death. And my sin and yours, if you know Yeshua, if you recognize what he did for you, were nailed to that tree. They're, they have no power over us any longer. An animal sacrifice could not have achieved that. They were just like placeholders or reservations. If you make travel reservations, you know, you can reserve a spot, but until you pay for it, you're not going to get on the plane, right? And that's what those sacrifices were like. God allowed people to have faith in his grace because he knew that he was ultimately going to be the one to pay the price. So what was Yeshua telling the Pharisees? He was telling them, what good is your religion if you don't know God? What good are your sacrifices if you want to keep these sinners at arm's length? What do you want from these sinners, just to be separated from them, or do you want to see them redeemed? God wouldn't expect you, if you knew him, to treat these sinners like they're less than human. If you knew God, you would rejoice that they're experiencing healing and redemption um, as they come to hear Yeshua. Sadly, there are still many people today, not only Jewish, but also Gentiles, who would turn away from Yeshua because they're offended that salvation, a right relationship with God, is not based on all the good things that they can do. That, that comes as a great disappointment. Uh, offended that God says that, that we need to repent and receive his grace on his terms, which is the sacrifice of Yeshua. But that's the thing. We can only know God on, on his terms. Let's, let's say that... Um, that I went over to, to Joy and something came over me and I just gave her a big kick in the shins. And then I said, oh, Joy, probably shouldn't have done that. But you know what? You're going to forgive me because I'm going to shovel all the snow in your driveway so that Chaim doesn't have to hurt his back. And then I'm going to buy you five pounds of the best chocolate and I'm sure you'll be really happy with that and we're good. Bye. We recognize that that's foolish in dealing with human relationships, but we don't realize it, that, that that's what we attempt to do with God, and, and, and he's just not having it. Um, so if anybody here is offended by the idea that we can only have a relationship with God on his terms, you're in good company. That's pretty much the whole human race. Don't, you know, don't feel like you're being singled out. Um, but I would say to you that if you are offended by it, talk to God about it. Ask him about it. Ask him about Yeshua. Ask him about whether he feels that he's happy to have you come into his presence without the forgiveness that he offers 
on his terms. Just ask him about it. Because if you don't, you might be turning your back on God's provision. And if you don't care to have a relationship with him in this life, don't expect to have one in the life to come. It's a, it's a relationship. Anyways, I don't want to preach too long about that. Next slide, please. My apologies. I get a little bit carried away with those verses. Um, this is this is the painting that the booby was looking at in that earlier slide, and this is the sign of Jonah, uh, Matthew 16. As we've seen that it's not only the multitudes that were following Yeshua, but it was also um, the religious leaders. And some of them, I'm sure, were curious. And we know that some of the religious leaders did enter into a relationship with Yeshua, but there were others who felt threatened by him and wanted to test him. And that's what we see uh, in, in this particular passage in chapter 16 when the Pharisees and the Sadducees ask Yeshua for a sign from heaven. And he responds, and this is after he's really you know, done quite a few signs. When evening comes, you say fair weather is coming for the sky is red. And in the morning, you say stormy weather is coming for the sky is red and gloomy. So you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. The Hebrew text in the painting references the book of Jonah, as Matthew does in his gospel. And Jonah prayed to Adonai his God from the belly of the fish. And so in the painting, you see that Jonah is surrounded by red, and that both references the skies that were talked about as well as the inside of the great fish. I never knew the inside of a great fish was red, but, you know, who knew? Steffi knew, so she painted it red. Anyway, so the prophets <laughs> who spent three days in the belly of the fish um, before being set back on dry land did, in a sense, foreshadow Yeshua's resurrection. I believe that. I mean, that's open to interpretation, but, but you know, Yeshua definitely was making that connection there. And so now, no doubt some of the Pharisees were able to understand that um, after, um, after he laid down his life and after the, the tomb was empty um, three days later. Next slide, please. So from Matthew 21, um, we have the palm branches, kind of like Sukkot out of season, I suppose. A lot of people think it was. And the crowds were cheering uh, and the city of Jerusalem is just alive and is just throbbing with anticipation as Yeshua enters the gates on a donkey because they recognize that he's fulfilling a prophecy of Zephaniah 9. Say to the daughters of Zion, see your king is coming to you, humble and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. The multitudes call out, save, please, save, please, save please. Of course, they wanted to be saved from the oppression of the Romans. It was quite, quite a natural desire. And their words echo the urgent cry of Psalm 106, 47. Save us, O Lord, O God, and gather us from among the nations. And so the multitudes are chanting, and they're really exuberant in their belief that Mashiach is going to bring the political victory. And beneath the swish of the palm branches that welcome him, Jesus understands that the expectations of the multitudes are about to be crushed. And he knows it. And it's going to be devastating for some people. But for other people, it's, it's going to be the beginning of everything. Because Yeshua's mission at least not this stage of his mission, is not focused on the external oppression, but rather on the internal tyranny of sin. And I know people think of sin as, you know, stuff you can get thrown in jail for, but I hope you see that it's not that. Again, it's the attitude of what? We don't want God in our business. I have never met a person who didn't feel that at some point about something in their life. And the thing is that sin kills our trust in God. And you can't love somebody that you don't trust. You can't be with somebody that you don't trust. You can't be with them in that close and intimate way that God meant for us. So sin causes us to be suspicious. Well, maybe he doesn't really know what's best. Maybe he doesn't really care. 
And if that's you this morning, again, welcome to the club. It's part of being a human being in this fallen state that Chaim was talking about earlier. It's, it's, it's part of our lot in life, but it's something that grieves the heart of God and that he desired to change for us so that we can enjoy who God is. We can trust him. We can know that he actually does know and care what's best for, for us and that we can have his Ruach HaKodesh to empower us um, to follow him in a way that, that we just can't do on our own. Yeshua came to destroy the power of sin so that we can know and trust God and walk in his light and in his love and have his joy and his peace, even in adverse circumstances. Because if we don't, then we feel the need to be in control. That's, you know, that's really the big problem. Because that need to be in control, that desire to be in control so that we can be sure to be happy, that leads to very dark places. Um, but the dark places are where Yeshua shines the brightest. Next slide. From Matthew 26, the cup of redemption. And uh, it's, as the colors are coming into focus, there's a bigger and a smaller one of it. This is, um, this is one of the things that we have on the resource table they're, they're blank, the cards are, on the resource table. Make a beautiful um, Passover. Sorry for the commercial. Make a beautiful Passover card if you want to send it. But you can see the painting shows there are four cups of wine, and they're rich, and they're flowing down, and three of the cups are pouring out purple, but the third one is pouring out red, which represents what? Blood. Represents blood. Yeshua took that cup after supper at during Pesach, coming up next month. He recites the blessing, and he adds the words that clarify his purpose, not revolution, but redemption. In verse 28, he says, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the removal of sins. The new covenant, again, it's a, a reference to the Hebrew Scriptures, and we had a beautiful um, reading of that and about that new covenant this morning. It's wonderful how everything kind of ties together. But the power of sin is going to be totally conquered in the face of Yeshua's sacrifice, and he knows that as he makes that statement as the Lamb of, of Pesach, the Lamb of, of God. And you might say that when Yeshua died, those who will trust in him inherited his righteousness. That was something that sort of came to me during my prayer time a few weeks ago. I'm not saying that it's, you know, like especially theologically astute, but it sort of helped me to think about it in a new way. We inherited um, something that was not ours at his death, and that's his righteousness. Just as death passed over when seeing the blood on the door, so God's righteous judgment is satisfied when when we receive what Yeshua did on our behalf when when we apply his blood to the doorposts of our hearts. So the next slide, please. It's the empty tomb. And as the Gospel of Matthew draws to a close, the good news is that the death of Yeshua is followed three days later by his resurrection. And that is the proof, the proof that his sacrifice was acceptable, that death could not hold him, and it's kind of cool that he lives to see us enjoy our inheritance. You know, how sad is it, you know, when you're not around to see your kids or grandkids enjoy their inheritance, but, but Yeshua rose to be able to see us, and, and that's hinted at also in Isaiah 53. And many do not think that resurrection is an especially Jewish doctrine anymore, but it, I think the prophet Isaiah would beg to differ with that, um, as well as um, the, the articles of faith that talk about the resurrection. But in this painting, you can see that over the tomb, Steffi included an excerpt from Isaiah 26, 19, the Hebrew letting over the tomb, your dead will live, awake, and shout for joy. And then beneath the tomb, going straight across, translation, a Hebrew translation of the words that the angel spoke to the two Miriams at the empty tomb. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. And, of course, the angel also told the women, do not be afraid, but rejoice. Do not be afraid, but rejoice. If you know that Yeshua is 
your Mashiach, that he's the Jewish Mashiach. You don't have to be afraid. It, it's going to be okay. Um, slippery roads aside, you know, sickness and death aside, um, the best is, is yet to come. He keeps his promises. When we see the promises that he kept in Yeshua's coming and fulfillment of these prophecies, we know by remembering the promises he's kept, we know that he will keep his future promises as well. There will be bumps. You know, he said, in this world, you might have trouble. <laughs> no. You will have trouble. But what? Be of Kachir for I have overcome the world. And and so knowing um, the great overcomer is, is really the greatest um, peace and comfort and joy that we possibly can have. It changes everything. It really does. And, um, and I hope that anybody here who might still be wondering and thinking about who Yeshua is, I do hope that, that you all ask God and I to show you, um, to show you um, if these connections and these quotations that Yeshua made from, from the Tanakh are something that really can put you at ease, that embracing him does not mean rejecting being Jewish, but it means understanding the greatest Jew that ever lived. Um, so I'm, I just am very excited to be able to tell you that this uh, whole show is going to be shown in Israel um, next month. And, I'll, and with that, I'm going to give you a little bit of an update on, on the ministry of Juice for Jesus before we have the, um, the love offering. But you received one of these during the break, so I'm going to ask if you would um, take it out and fold on the card, just one per family. It used to make a really cool sound. Now it just kind of comes apart with a little whimper. Um, but does, did everybody get one of these? Yeah, okay. So um, unless you're super creative, you have two cards yet. The little one um, has me before I stopped dyeing my hair and uh, asking for prayer. <laughs> prayer for, pray for me. Um, I need it. And, um, and you can keep this in your Bible or in your refrigerator for a little while. I hope that you will fill out and return the card to us in the love offering with or without um, a gift of money. It's a gift to us just knowing that you're interested in our ministry and that you want to hear from us. And uh, one of the things that I do with Jews for Jesus is to put together our newsletter, and it's a free newsletter, and so I'm honored um, if you would like to receive it every month. And this is on the free side of the literature table, the resource table. Um, as well, I put together monthly emails and weekly stories of, of, of what's going on. So you can pray for things as they're happening. And so if you put down your email address, we'll be able to keep in touch with you in that way as well. And one of the things that you'll read about if you get our uh, main newsletter is the fact that we're having this art show, this Multitudes art show in Tel Aviv, and it's coinciding with an event in the city that's called Open Windows. And um, there's a lot of art appreciation in the city of Tel Aviv. There's a lot of art galleries in Tel Aviv. And during this time, a lot of the historic buildings are opened up and thousands of Israelis come pouring through. And not far from the Moish Rosen Center, there is an historic church that has these gorgeous stained glass windows and it always draws a lot of people um, at that event and so um, this church has agreed um, to display many of the paintings that you just saw and probably many that you didn't see um, which also you can ask about at the resource table but anyway so there'll be people coming through and reading the legends and seeing the texts from Matthew and seeing the texts um, that are quoted um, from the Hebrew scriptures, and then they'll be invited to go on to the center to see um, the other paintings. So we're very excited about that. Now you might wonder, well, how do you think Israelis are going to respond to these paintings? And I can tell you that we've already had some indication because we've had several shows here in the United States. Um, it launched in San Francisco, and we had several Israelis come to that because in San Francisco we have a facility um, that opens up to Israeli couch surfers. <laughs> and so some of those Israeli couch surfers were there and, and were very engrossed. One of the guys, um, I think his name was Ellie, stayed the whole time that it was open. And as he looked at um, some of the paintings, actually he looked at the painting that Judy and John have a print in their home, and, he, and tears came to his eyes. And that was the Lord's Prayer. 
Um, another of the Israeli women stood in front of the sign of Jonah and listened as the whole gospel was explained to her. So we're pretty excited about that. Hope that you'll be praying for that. Another thing to be praying for, and I know that part of the outreach planning has to do with how to be a testimony um, to the Jewish community um, for Holocaust Remembrance Day. So this is, this is really mind-boggling. But Jews for Jesus later this summer is going to be opening up a new branch in, of all places, Berlin. Berlin, Germany. And I, you know, I can hardly comprehend that. Um, a lot of Jewish people have returned there, and in particular, a lot of Israelis are moving to Berlin and finding it a place that, where they enjoy living. And so for any number of years, there have been enough of our people there that we've had annual uh, outreaches in the summertime and then quarterly visits to follow up on the people who wanted to know more there. And now it's to the point where we want to have an ongoing you know, everyday relationship with these people. So we have a young family that's moving there, Aaron um, and Becky Lewin, and their kids are, are moving there. And um, you'll be able to read about that more in our June newsletter. And so that's exciting. Another thing that um, I had a lot of fun working on is a project um, that's actually a workbook for people who want to be in ministry to Jewish Gentile couples. And because of such a high rate of intermarriage over the last decades, this has become a real open door as many of these couples who don't know the Lord yet and are, they don't have that spiritual unity and they're not finding help from that necessarily from the JCC, you know, or their synagogues. And so they're, they're open to looking to people who can help. And so one of our staff has really um, done a lot of research about this and, um, and I got to help him put together a workbook um, that helps people in cross-cultural communications. And um, if you're not Jewish and, and you're looking for help in sharing your faith with, with Jewish friends, I think that when the book comes out, you'll appreciate it because it's not only about couples. It's just about communicating cross-culturally and understanding that sometimes we say something and the other person hears something completely different and, and knowing how to get on the same page. So that's something to be praying about. Um, there are many things that I could ask you to be praying, but I don't want to infringe um, on the time. So I hope that you will fill out that card. And if the Lord is leading you to be part of our adventures um, through giving a gift, um, thank you. We appreciate it. It's going to be used to raise the banner of Yeshua, uh, not only here in the U.S., but all over the world. And if it's convenient um, for you to make a check, is it okay? can you make it to, to Jews for Jesus? And that way we can thank you and receipt you. But again, whether or not you are able to do that, I hope that you will want to keep in touch uh, and put that in the love offering. And I'll be um, at the back um, later at the resource table and hope to be able to greet you. Thank you for letting me share the Shabbat with you. Mm -hmm.